Good morning. My name is Bob, and I serve as one of the elders here at CB. And it's a privilege and a, and a blessing to serve the Lord uh, with the other elders, pastors, staff, and each one of you uh, here and in this community and growing in it. And I want to talk with you about familiar things and about how familiar things can become so familiar that we don't know them. The Columbia River Gorge is, of course, a spectacular geographical wonder. I drive through it all the time at 65 miles per hour. Yes, Multnomah Falls is our Oregon's number one visitor attraction. I take all my out-of-town friends who come to see it. Sure, Mount Hood is stunning. I see it a lot of the time as I'm driving east in Portland. It's just part of normal, familiar life here in Oregon, isn't it? I still remember when my aunt, uncle, and cousins came to Oregon for a visit from wild and wonderful West Virginia. As they experienced the gorge, Multnomah Falls, and Mount Hood, they were speechless, total wonder and awe. When they could speak, it was things like, this is awesome, this is extraordinary, this is incredible, this is unbelievable. So, why the awe? Well, West Virginia has New River Gorge on the back of its quarter, but we have the Columbia River Gorge. West Virginia's tallest waterfall is Blackwater Falls at 62 feet. <laughs> but we have cascading 620-foot Multnomah Falls. West Virginia's highest peak is Spruce Knob <laughs> at 4,863 feet, but towering 11,250 feet into the sky is our Mount Hood. Amen? <clears throat> my, my relatives experienced amazing features of God's creation that I had taken for granted. So, who knew these features best? Me, familiar with them for a long time? Or my relatives, who experienced them for the first time? Sometimes things become background scenery that we don't really know or appreciate. And sometimes we move beyond neglect to scorn. The gorge is the source of all of our bad, icy, snowy, cold weather. The gorge is evil. Okay. A telephoto focus on the negative. We find a flaw and write him off. Write it off. And there's nothing scenic or amazing about the gorge anymore, right? Sometimes people become background scenery, background noise we filter out. People become so familiar that we don't really know or appreciate them. Coworkers, fellow students, people at McDonald's, homeless people, neighbors, friends, family, spouse, and brothers and sisters in the church, the body of Christ. 
And sometimes we become familiar with Jesus. We don't deeply appreciate who He is, including all of His amazing qualities. And we dwell on His flaws, such as not giving us what we want when we want it. It doesn't have to be this way, but it is sometimes. The tyranny of the urgent, the tyranny of busyness, the tyranny of schedules, technology, and keeping up with all the familiar people on social media. Multiple tyrannies of oppressive bondage that keep us free from deep and genuine relationships we desire. What does it take to break out of the familiar? Belief and obedience. In Mark 6, 1 through 6, Jesus travels to a familiar place, his hometown full of people he knew very well. And these people, it turns out, were very familiar with him. Let's see what the Lord wants to teach and apply to our lives and relationships this morning. But first, let's pray. Dear good, good Father, we thank you for uh, life, uh, life in you and your Son. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that we're here today. Uh, may you apply your word to our hearts and lives and relationships. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Jesus came from Jairus' home in Galilee, where he had just resurrected Jairus' 12-year-old daughter, immediately following a major healing and a dramatic exorcism, chapter 5 being full of faith and belief from beginning to end. Then Jesus came to his hometown, Nazareth. He came with some believers, disciples being believers who follow Jesus. It's on-the-job training as they listen to Jesus sow the word to see who will believe. And we wonder, what kind of welcome will Jesus receive? Doesn't the kind of welcome depend on who the person is and what he has done? Jesus Christ, completely righteous, good teacher, astonishing miracles, we're thinking warm town uh, we're t- thinking warm welcome hometown hero but then we remember a couple of his previous visits to nazareth in the mark 3 visit jesus's family went out to seize him saying he is out of his mind and the scribes declared he is possessed by beelzebul by the prince of demons he casts out demons Frosty welcome. Hometown zero. And Jesus seized that opportunity to describe his true family. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Obedience is the mark of true belief, membership in God's true family. And how about the gnarly Luke 4 visit? 
On the Sabbath in the synagogue, Jesus ran, read from the Isaiah scroll, sat down, and said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. Basically, I am the Messiah. And after Jesus spoke favorably about Gentile faith, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up, drove him out of town, brought him to the brow of Mount Precipice, and tried to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Another hometown zero visit, seemingly. So now back to Mark 6, hometown hero this time. Sometimes people change. Or hometown zero. Sometimes we don't. At this point, we're thinking coin flip at best. Let's keep reading to find out. Verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? The hometown people were astonished, meaning overwhelmed. There's some kind of amazement gap here. But sounds like astonished in the sense of positive surprise. Because they had heard him and acknowledged his wise teaching and mighty miracles. Sounds like Jesus is incredible. Jesus is extraordinary. Jesus is amazing. Jesus is awesome. Jesus is incredible. Trending belief, hometown hero, I would say. Let's keep reading to confirm or, or to shape our understanding if, if we're wrong, which, which we might be. Verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The hometown people refused to believe in Jesus. They refused to trust and obey. He wasn't what they expected or wanted. And verse 3 helps us accurately interpret verses 2 and 3. I'll read them together. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They were astonished, meaning overwhelmed, all right. Not overwhelmed in the sense of positive surprise, but rather overwhelmed by their gap of unbelief. Jesus is incredible. Jesus is not credible. Jesus, we don't believe in you and we won't trust you. Incredible Jesus. Some details stand out pretty clearly. They, they didn't mention Jesus by name. Names are pretty important. They referred to Jesus in the third person. Odd to refer to someone present in the third person. 
They asked and answered their own repudiating questions, probably not honest questions to begin with, and they disparaged and minimized his vocation and his family. Perhaps. Jesus Carpenter is a blue-collar worker from here, just like me, so he's nothing special. Who does he think he is? Maybe. I remember Joseph Carpenter sold me a chair one time, and after only three years, one of the legs fell off. Perhaps. I remember when James Carpenter took his slingshot and killed my father's favorite sheep. Only God knows what exactly they were thinking. But in general, the Carpenters are a family from our town. We know them. They are kind of like us. And as they always say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They wrote Jesus off because they were familiar with him. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't welcome Jesus. They didn't welcome Jesus into their lives. They didn't welcome themselves into his life. So what's the main point? Jesus tells us in summary form, verse 4, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. In this passage, familiarity breeds dishonor. Familiarity breeds unbelief, which is the root of dishonor. In Nazareth, familiarity bred contempt, which is a disregard for someone who should be taken into account. It doesn't have to be this way, but sometimes it is. And the irony the people who knew that they knew him best didn't really know him. They didn't believe. And this verse is Jesus' spot-on general summary. Well, what were the results of unbelief? How about verse 5? And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. Jesus could do no mighty work in Nazareth. But we know that Jesus is powerful. So what's going on here? It's not a power problem. Jesus has the power. It's a plug-in problem. They hadn't faith connected to Jesus, the personal power source. If you don't plug in the lamp... Don't blame the power company when you don't see the light. No belief, no honor, no power. But as we look closely, there was belief in Nazareth. But where? Didn't Jesus clearly tell us there wasn't? Good question. Jesus gives an accurate general summary of the hometown response. But also note some exceptions to what was generally true. Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Okay. Someone might say, these are mercy miracles performed in the absence of faith. Well, Jesus does mercy miracles, but 
Not here, I don't think. Someone else might say, these are only minor miracles, like, like the healing of toenail fungus. <clears throat> I don't think this is it either. Even though it's my personal view that the healing of toenail fungus would be at least a mid-level miracle. Okay? <laughs> Belief is our context here in Mark. It's best to interpret that some people in his audience believed specifically those who Jesus healed. And in general, except for Judas Iscariot, the disciples were believers, even though they struggled with faith, didn't get it part of the time, or seemingly very quick at all, kind of like us sometimes. And we know that at some point, James Carpenter believed, became a church leader in Jerusalem, and wrote the book of James, including about faith. And we know that at some point, Judas Carpenter believed and wrote the book of Jude and exhorted us to contend for the faith. In Nazareth, unbelief for sure and some belief. Let's finish reading. Verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Jesus marveled. I wonder in what sense, in what way does Jesus marvel? I don't think that he was surprised. Rather, it's a description of the blessing gap. The gap between what some people settle for and the life Jesus desires us to experience in him. Jesus marvels at unbelief because he loves us and wants the best for us. And Jesus keeps on teaching in the villages to see who will trust and obey, to welcome precious souls into his life of a belief and obedience. Whenever the word is taught, aren't there usually unbelievers uh, and believers present? And don't some believe, yet others do not? It was true that Sabbath in Nazareth, and it's true here today at CB. Today, Jesus is incredible. Or, Jesus is incredible. Three areas of application. One, life. Two, life together. And three, welcoming everyone into Jesus' life. Heard that before? Okay. First, let's talk about life. Some here this morning need life, new life, abundant life, eternal life, salvation. The same life Jesus offered his hometown people. You might know this morning that you're not a believer. Or you might, like many religious people in Jesus' day, think you have life when you don't. You've somehow gotten into a religious routine. You appreciate good teaching once a week and are hoping that Jesus will do something for you, maybe some strategic and dazzling miracle or answer to prayer. In either case, here in Portland, your hometown, so to speak, Jesus is inviting you into his life. Jesus' first words in Mark, chapter 1, verse 15, are imperative. 
The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You know you have sinned. You know you can't even live according to your own standard, let alone God's holy standard. And when we repent of our sins, God forgives us every time. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus declares about himself in Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is good news to all of us, the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives in bondage to sin. And today is your favorable day to respond. Talk with someone about it. Tell someone about it. Second, let's talk about life together. Once we have life, we want to grow in this life with Jesus and fellow believers, right? The kind of life that Jesus enjoyed with his band of disciples in Nazareth and beyond. You might be a genuine Christian here this morning, but stuck in a spiritual rut or routine. Or you might be a Christian who is flourishing right now. In either case, we need to grow in our life together. Life Together, the title of one of my all-time favorite books, was written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, who in 1945 was executed by special order of Heinrich Himmler in the dying days of World War II. I read Life Together every couple of years, whether I need to or not, and I always need to. In the mid to late 1930s, living under the firm boot of Nazi oppression, Bonhoeffer and others enjoyed life together in Christian community. Life together is the distilled essence of Christian community under the constant threat of persecution, arrest, and death. Here in the States, we have the disadvantage of multiple luxuries and extraneous things that can easily distract us from the essentials of life together. Bonhoeffer describes solitude and community. Solitude, time alone with God. Community, time with other believers, and God's there too. Solitude and community are the complete opposite of isolation and the crowd. Bonhoeffer writes, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. Solitude and community. Which one do you need to grow in? Which one do you want to grow in? Which one will you grow in? And maybe both 
My place of solitude is at McDonald's on 122nd and Gleason. It helps that I'm 50% deaf. Many of you couldn't do solitude at McDonald's. For me, it works because it's a different place than home or work. At McDonald's, I don't need to resolve conflict, teach classes, take out the trash, clean up the lobby, paint the exterior, change diapers, lead groups, or do a lot of other things. They pay people to do that there. I spend time alone with Jesus, including Bible, prayer, and journaling. And I fight hard to get solitude, usually around 5.30 in the morning before work. Mark 135 records about Jesus. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. McDonald's is my desolate place. This McDonald's cup says, good days start here. True. It also says, my time. Not true. My time with God. That's true. And I'm glad to support my wife Ito and her good fight for regular solitude. After a long day loving and serving our two precious young men, ages five and three, Ito very much needs my support for her time with Jesus. What sacrifice will you make to grow in your experience of solitude? And what time of day and location works best for you? And who will you talk with about it? And how will you fight for it? Because it's worth the good fight. Because solitude is a key nutrient which amends the good soil of belief and obedience. And what about the community aspect of life together? Ito and I really like hospitality, inviting people over for food, fellowship, and fun. It's been a solid growth area for us the past few years, with more growth to come. Because there are always good reasons to not invite people over. We're really tired. Our home isn't in good enough shape yet. And all kinds of other good reasons that we can think of. But Ito and I have found that one evening with a person or a family yields more depth of relationship than a few years of proximity, a multitude of hellos, and numerous brief conversations on Sunday morning. What sacrifice will you make to grow in your experience of community? And what will you do? Hospitality in your home? Serving together to meet the practical needs of other people? Inviting someone you don't know out for coffee or a meal? Participate in a community group? Who here at CB has become background scenery? We desire to grow in our love and appreciation for others who are fearfully and wonderfully made by God in His image. I wonder, who here at CB has become background scenery? Let's embrace growth in life together as we respond in obedience to the Holy Spirit, both in solitude and community. 
and third, welcoming everyone into Jesus' life. When we have life in Jesus and then are growing in life together, we also want to welcome others into it. We want others to enjoy this life with us. Jesus and his disciples were doing life together as they traveled from village to village. What qualifies someone to welcome others into Jesus' life? I thought of two things. One, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And two, Jesus has done something in my life that I'm willing to talk about. <laughs> Many fully qualified people here this morning. And once we're qualified, Jesus sends us out, doesn't he? To McDonald's or wherever you hang out. Which uh, non-Christian has become so familiar to you that you don't really notice him or her anymore? Sometimes we blast through life at 65 miles per hour or faster and miss the people around us. Ever happened to you? Someone across the classroom, across the warehouse, across the cubicle, across the store, across the street, across the fence, across the house, across the room, across somewhere else. Walk across your space and talk about Jesus and love people. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked with a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. In our passage, the, the People in Nazareth didn't believe in Jesus because they were familiar with him. Today, some people don't believe in Jesus because they're familiar with his family, his family being Christians, us. They say we are hypocrites who think we're better than other people, say one thing and do another, try to look good and judge everybody else. Of course, hypocrites exist, and all of us have engaged in hypocritical behavior. But genuine believers aren't hypocrites. Genuine believers are quick to repent and ask for, for forgiveness. Genuine believers are quick to ask God for help in growing in holiness. When I engage a non-Christian in significant relationship, it's difficult for him to maintain the view that I am a hypocrite because I spend enough time with him that I'm bound to sin against him and then want and need to apologize and ask for forgiveness which is something genuine hypocrites don't do. Make it difficult, if not impossible, for the non-Christian to write you off wrongly as an aloof hypocrite. Get to know them so well that they experience your repentance and belief. A good taste of the Christian life. McDonald's, 
my place of solitude is also somehow becoming a place of welcoming others into Jesus' life. I have life in Jesus and growing in life together with Jesus and fellow believers, and God is helping me seize opportunities for relationships at my McDonald's. I don't own it. I just spend a lot of time there. I think of Ryan, who even in my peripheral vision, clearly homeless, as he approached my table, looked him in the eye, I looked him in the eye, and I smiled and said hello. He said, hello, and could you give me a dollar for coffee? I gave him a couple of dollars and invited him to come back and eat and talk with me, which he did after he bought some coffee and a breakfast sandwich. We had a good conversation, including pointing him to some other people and services at Portland Rescue Mission, where I serve. I think of Terry. I thought to myself, that man over there is a regular in my McDonald's community, and I haven't met him yet. So I walked across the room and extended my hand and said, hello, my name is Bob. I'm a regular here, and notice that you are too, and we haven't met yet. He was startled. I think that goes against the rules of McDonald's, the the rules of our society, you know, okay? And he didn't extend his hand or give me his name at that time. But we both endured a good, awkward minute or two, I would say, before he started telling me about several big, painful problems in his life, including divorce, unemployment, and major health issues. He presented strongly as a victim of everybody and everything with no real hope of breaking out of his stuckness. So I asked him, do you think there's anyone in this world who is willing to help you? He responded, I don't know, which told me he's open to something. We talked about that for a while, then it was time to go after about 25 minutes. At that point, he extended his hand and said, I'm Terry, and we shook hands, and I said, nice to meet you. I look forward to talking more with Terry and inviting him into Jesus' life. Uh, Ryan and Terry and others are part of my McDonald's community. They're a significant part of the everyone we want to invite into Jesus' life. Everyone has a name, Uh, everyone has a story, and everyone matters to God, so everyone matters to us. Who are some of the specific everyones in your life? Jesus is always teaching. He, He taught in Nazareth. He has taught in many places. He has taught us here this morning. It is imperative that each one of us here this morning hear, respond, and grow in belief and obedience in life, uh, in, in life together, in welcoming everyone into Jesus' life. Let's let Jesus have the final word still echoing in our ears and hearts from Mark chapter 4. Listen, behold, 
a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears, let him hear. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. May you apply it to our lives and relationships with you and others. And may we be that good soil who will respond today. In Jesus' name, amen.